Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. delighted to be here today with Raj Shah, or Rajiv Shah, as we say, um, to discuss his new book, Big Bets, How Large-Scale Change Really Happens. And taking a lesson from Raj's book, one of the things that he really emphasizes is about making it personal. So here are a few little fun facts about us. Raj and I both served in the Obama administration, but unfortunately we didn't really have much of an opportunity to collaborate together. Um, Our houses in Washington, D.C. were a few blocks apart from each other. Two. Yep, two blocks. Two of Raj and Shivam's children are the same ages as mine, and they were in the same classes at school together, and we actually carpooled to school together every single day. And in the words of somebody who you might know, Hillary Clinton, who said that it takes a village, that's what I think of when I think of Shiva Minraj, because I truly don't know how during those years where we both served in the Clinton administration, I mean, sorry, in the Obama administration, and um, Phil and Shiva were also working, how we would have kept it together um, unless we had been able to lean on each other to feed our kids, you know, carpool our kids around and just generally support and watch the kids. And by the way, they are much better parents than we are, so I really (laughs) am indebted to them in so many ways. Um, So what I want to say is, first of all, congratulations on the book. It is awesome. I really loved it. And I loved it not just for the fascinating examples of the big bets that you shared or the very insightful and actionable lessons that you shared. But I loved how open you were about your mistakes along the way. You did it in like a really lovely way that we can all learn from, um, including some you know, pretty embarrassing moments that you shared um, in such a kind of raw, powerful, and also laughing at yourself kind of way. And you know, although this is not a memoir, An interesting feature was the glimpse that you gave us into your family life and your marriage. And in describing your marriage, I have to say, it's clear that in addition to the love that you share, am I really embarrassing here? Yes. You and (laughs) you and I'm making it personal, you and Shivam have a real partnership, like a partnership that should truly be celebrated. And on that alone, it's worth reading the book for. Um, You both have largely oriented your careers towards making big bets and have been very focused on having social impact on a very broad scale. And you give us a window into how you've supported each other in achieving your personal, your professional, and your collective goals. And so for me, this book was inspiring on many levels. And I thank you on behalf of everyone here and all the people who will read this book for pulling back the curtain in the way that you did, um, for your thoughtful reflections, and for allowing yourself to be vulnerable with the mistakes that you've made and not letting those stand in the way of the pursuit of the ultimate big goal. And so with that, Raj, let me start by asking you, 
why did you write this book? <laughs> okay. First, just thank you, Marnie, for doing this. As, as uh, you all now know, Marnie and I go way back, and, and we are definitely uh, villagers together, helping each other through life and work and family. And uh, it is special to have Shivam here today. Thank you for being here, and, and thanks for those lovely comments about, about us. Uh, actually, I wrote the book because, you know, I, I really uh, feel... I've had a, a bunch of unique experiences. Some might have been deserved, but many just sort of happened. And through those experiences, I got to see how some extraordinary people uh, create the kind of transformational change in communities and in our world that just inspires you to uh, be more ambitious on behalf of humanity and be optimistic about the world we live in and be... Uh, someone who wants to make the world more just, more fair, and more equitable. And I learned from uh, some household names like Bill and Melinda Gates and Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, but I learned just as much from people most people haven't heard of, like Molly Melching, who runs a NGO in West Africa and went village by village to meet tribal elders to convince them that girls should get to go to school and it shouldn't be female genital cutting and girls should have dignity and opportunity and the full expanse of life. And I felt like if I could share those stories and, and myself try to learn from them uh, some lessons learned, it would both help me in my work going forward and, and it might inspire people to be uh, true, truly optimistic and ambitious on behalf of making the world a better place. And when you, um, when you say people, like, did you have somebody in particular in mind as somebody who you thought that who would read the book? And let me just share one thing is because you very humorously humorously wrote about that wrote this about your kids you said that Sajan Amna and Jazel gave advice on the cover the title and they did a great job and the stories all while questioning who would read my book anyway <laughs> so who was your intended audience well it really was young young professionals i feel like i grew up in suburban detroit my parents are first generation immigrants um, as you can probably tell, I'm Indian American, and and so this is a common thing in our community. But I thought I should be either a doctor or an engineer. You know, those were the two options. Uh, I tried a little bit of both and became a doctor. Uh, but I always wanted to be involved from a young age in like politics and social change and and service in and public service in some form. But I really didn't know how to get there. You know, if you want to be a doctor, you take a set of exams and you become a doctor. Uh, if you want to do public service, it's much, much harder So, uh, to know the path if you, if you don't have a lot of contacts and mentors. So I felt uh, quite confused in my 20s and even early 30s about what's the path. And I thought if I wrote the book, it might help give a, an actual playbook to young professionals who say, I want to make a difference in the world. Uh, but I want to learn how to do it in a way where, it, you know, the change we create is quite lasting and significant. And I want to learn the kind of tools and techniques to be successful on that path. Yeah. So how do you define a big bet? And can you give us some, some examples? Yeah. So a big bet is, a, is, to me, a bold aspiration to actually solve and not just make piecemeal improvements to the problems we face. And uh, I think it starts with setting a goal. It usually involves finding kind of really fresh, innovative solutions that make those goals achievable. Uh, it almost always involves uh, bringing together truly unlikely partners 
uh, and and staying focused on on results. I learned how to think that way in my early career working with Bill and Melinda Gates. I ended up on a small team. I, I can't really see who's here, but one of my former colleagues um, and good friend Rick Klausner was is also um, in town here. And and you know there was a great group of us that were were tasked with thinking about how would you actually vaccinate every single child on the planet. And I thought, gosh, who even thinks that way, right? People think about philanthropy and they think about, let's do the good we can do. Uh, but, but that wasn't good enough for, for Bill and Melinda in that moment. They had read an article about hundreds of thousands of children dying of a simple disease called rotavirus. Uh, they had become aware of the fact that I think Merck was going to introduce a vaccine, but in rich countries where kids were not dying and in poor countries where kids were dying, there would be no vaccine. And they said, this is just not right. How do we actually transform that reality so that every kid everywhere gets vaccinated? And so the first two chapters are lessons learned from that exercise. Uh, but to make a very long story short, uh, after really drilling down on what would it take, there are 104 million kids born every year. About 40 million of them are not getting vaccines. There was no real supply base for manufacturing that was low cost, high volume. That the financing system was broken and just in time and very last minute and needed to be re rearchitected. Uh, after working for years, understanding those problems and then coming up with solutions to actually structurally deal with them, we can now say with confidence that over 20 years, 980 million children have been vaccinated and more than 16 million child lives have been saved from that exercise. And to me, that's a big bet that paid off. And it became instructive for many of the subsequent efforts that I document in the book. So it feels like that was the first time where you really allowed yourself to think like that this is like a, a true big bet and this was something that you decided that you were going to pursue. But one of the things that you also talk about is the aspiration trap. And I wonder if you can speak, you know, define that a little bit because it seems important to... Yeah, the aspiration trap, I find, I, I feel like we confront the aspiration trap every day, multiple times a day. It, it's basically the idea that, well, these problems are too big and too complex and too costly and require too much political leadership and, and are too difficult to solve. And, and I think we start thinking that so that we can avoid having to solve them. You know, so, so it becomes, I run the Rockefeller Foundation. A lot of people approach, approach me and say, okay, well, this is too complex to solve, but you can do some good here, you know, if you do this. And, and that's good. It's good to do good. <laughs> I'm for it. Uh, but, but in the context of actually selecting big global challenges where you can actually craft a strategy to solve a problem over time, um, that's that's different, and it requires breaking out of that aspiration trap. And in fact, uh, the the first chapter of the book is called "Ask a Simple Question," because I felt in those early days with with the Gates team, Bill would ask us constantly, "What does it cost to vaccinate every child?" And a lot of experts would say, "Well, you can't think about it that way. It's too complicated. You know, you have to think about human resources and vaccine delivery and cold chain and seventy countries around the world, and it, it's just very very complex." But if you didn't know the unit cost of vaccinating one kid, you couldn't imagine how much you might have to raise to vaccinate 104 million a year for years and years and years. So uh, the discipline of thinking that way is, is how you avoid falling into the aspiration trap. Okay. So you've had this fascinating career journey, and you sort of already alluded to this, but your upbringing seems to have led you down this path of becoming a medical doctor. And that was what your family from 
India seemed to value. So you became a doctor, but as you said, you could have become an engineer. That seemed to be sort of another path you could have taken. Um, But you make a, a big, hard, and I would say courageous decision after getting your medical degree not to practice medicine and instead to work on a presidential campaign. Why? How did that go over with your family? And how did you then pivot from that to the Gates Foundation and know that it was the right thing for you to do? Well, so I, I always wanted to try politics. And so I, I went to Penn in Philadelphia for medical school and found myself volunteering on uh, Ed Rendell, who was then mayor on his uh, mayoral campaigns. And through that, I had this experience where I met Al Gore at an event. And so I said, gosh, I should work on Al Gore's presidential campaign. So I asked all my professors. I had a scholarship at Penn because I was also doing a degree at the business school. And uh, and my professors, except for one, my professors were like, well, that's that's probably not a good idea. You have the scholarship. If you leave, you know, you, you won't have that anymore. And you should be doing research and, and not running a campaign, not going on a campaign. So, uh, but I had one person in that setting, uh, one professor who was like, you know, this is your dream, go for it. So I wrote letters to, the, uh, to Gore's campaign and wrote a couple of letters, got rejected twice, just to be a volunteer, not even to get paid. Yeah, I, all I needed was housing. Uh, and the campaign was in Washington, D.C., and it was struggling. So he shut down his D.C. campaign and moved it to Nashville, Tennessee. And a friend of mine said, you know, now try again applying. So I did. Uh, and they said, OK, we won't pay you, but if you come, we'll find you housing. And so the day after my last set of board exams, uh, Shivam and I got in the car and drove 14 hours from Philly to Nashville. I ended up spending six months living in Al Gore's best friend's mom's pool house. Uh, in Belmead, Nashville, for those of you that are Tennesseans. And, uh, and frankly, I thought I had just thrown my life away. I mean, I was doing, I thought, I had this image of I'm going to be changing American policy and inspiring a different future for our country. And in reality, I was the only volunteer who was over 16. So I had a car and a license, and I was driving these kids back and forth to the Nashville Public Library uh, so they could do research on Al Gore's war against lawn darts in the 1980s. Uh, And so it didn't feel very productive. Uh, But one thing led to another. Oh, and then we lost the campaign. I mean, who would have thought we actually won by votes, but that's not how it works here. Uh, And so, and then I was just out of a job. And it just so happened that someone from that campaign was helping uh, the Gates team, you know, build their early team. And they were sort of looking for someone who knew a little bit about health and economics but not too much because they didn't want a, a real expert. They wanted more of an intern. Uh, and I got a job uh, and, and, you know, and ended up staying with the Gates team for almost eight years. That's amazing. Okay, so then you go to, you go to the Gates Foundation. It seems like you sort of found your groove there. You're working on a very big bet. And then you get this call from then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton who offers you the job to be administrator of USAID. And um, you know, tell us about that moment. Did you feel ready to lead that agency? And did you have imposter syndrome? Well, you know, so I, I actually started in the Obama administration, the Department of Agriculture, and then uh, started working with Hillary Clinton and a few others on an effort to fight hunger on global scale. And, and for those of you that remember, in 2000, 
ate the financial crisis correlated with a big spike in food prices around the world, and as they as they often do, and about a hundred million people have been pushed back into a condition of of extreme poverty and hunger. So the cover of the Economist that year, and one of the issues had a picture of a young girl who was eating what they called a mud cake in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And a mud cake is exactly what it sounds like. It's cereal grain basically mixed with mud for more satiety. And and so we, we and President Obama said we're going to make a big effort to fight hunger by reinvesting in agriculture and communities around the world, uh, and we're going to do this at scale. So I started working with Hillary on that project while I was at USDA, and then one morning, my BlackBerry rang, and it was Hillary, and she's like, I, we, President, I want you to run USAID. And I, to me, that was a dream job. I mean, USAID is uh, America's international development agency, 12,000 people, at the time a $23, 24000000000 billion budget, now probably 10, 10 or so billion dollars more, and, uh, and a storied institution in terms of helping to address issues like hunger and health in communities around the planet. So I felt... You know, to be honest, I felt prepared because I had I had done all this work at Gates, uh, but I also felt prepared because I, there was so much I didn't know, and thankfully I didn't know at the time. I didn't understand the role USAID played in in leading these big humanitarian uh, responses to emergencies around the world. I hadn't been as aware of the negotiations you do as uh, leading USAID on behalf of elections and election monitoring and arguing with and convincing leaders to honor election results. And so, so uh, in part due to ignorance and in part probably overconfidence, I certainly felt prepared at the time, um, only to have the Haiti earthquake happen on my first week on the job. Well, that's what I want to talk about, because you clearly had a vision for USAID, and um, you know you got the job as administrator, but your plans were quickly derailed after the 2010 earthquake in Haiti um, that happened just a week after you became administrator. And you were asked to lead the response, which is just a huge undertaking. No pressure. I mean, a lot of pressure. And um, you describe in your book how you walked into the Oval Office for the first crisis response meeting, and you overheard then-Vice President Biden asking President Obama, President Obama whether he thought you were up to the job. <laughs> and in fact, it sounded like then Vice President Biden actually had somebody else in mind who might be able to do this job better than you. And um, I mean, I just can't really even imagine what it's like to overhear that conversation, first of all. You're probably nervous anyways walking in there. And um, But... How did that feel, and how did you respond? Uh, well, uh, so it's it's funny these things happen in life, right? So you, I, I was kind of uh, the the night the night of the Haiti earthquake. President Obama had called and uh, asked me to lead the humanitarian response, and you know it was pretty tragic, and we knew that right away. Uh, in Haiti, two hundred and twenty thousand people were unaccounted for very quickly, uh, which is an extraordinary extraordinary number. 21 of 22 ministries had collapsed. And, and the UN organization, which was both providing security through a security force and would have led the humanitarian efforts, not only collapsed, but most of their senior leadership perished, people that many of us had worked with. And so it was an unbelievable 
tragedy and very little information coming out. So the president informed me I was going to be leading this effort the, the night prior. The next mor- And we had a series of meetings. And the next morning, I went to my first briefing in the Oval Office. And of course, you're going to get there a little early because you certainly don't want to be late. You know? So I, I walk in, and in fact, uh, the president and vice president are sort of over by the window away from the door. And President Obama was sort of looking at the, at the door and saw me come in. But Vice President Biden was looking out the window, talking, talking to him, didn't see me, and said, you know, are you sure about this Raj Shah guy? He's, he's 30-something. He's never done this before. The, the FEMA administrator, a wonderful leader named Craig Fugate, has decades of experience doing this. Like, shouldn't we ask Craig to lead this effort? And, and then President Obama saw me walk in, so he came over right away, and he's like, Raj, come in, sit down. But I had heard all that, so I was already anxious. The good news was, in, in the meeting, like half the cabinet piles in for the meeting, Craig was in the meeting. And so on the way out, I sort of grabbed Craig, and I was like, Craig, I'm going to really need your help, like a lot of your help. And, uh, and he was great. He said, absolutely anything. And that is, I, I write in the book, the lesson I learned I call it open the turnstiles because when we got back to USAID, you know, there was a long line. If you had a USAID badge, you could get in and out quickly through all the layers of security. But if you were from FEMA, like Craig was, or if you were from uh, many of the military components, you, you had to stand in line and get badged in every time. And it, and it took a lot of time. So we actually just asked security at the, in the front lobby to keep the gates open so people could walk in and out. And, uh, and sacrifice a little bit of security for the sense of building one team. And in fact, Craig and Mike Mullen, who was chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and, and their teams just came in and out, and, and we all sort of built a common operating platform in our emergency room, in our emergency response center, and led what I think at the time was considered the, the largest and most effective humanitarian response to a disaster of that type in history. And... I'm really, really proud of the way that team came together. But the reason the lesson learned is open the turnstiles is I saw my job more as getting everybody to work together in one team with one moral purpose in that moment uh, than necessarily trying to like call all the shots. Right. And um, you've, you probably, over the course of your time there, found yourself in the Oval Office and in other rooms like the Situation Room many, many times. And probably learn many lessons there too, besides open the turnstile, like what are some of the lessons that you take from those sort of pressure-filled moments? Well, I, especially on Haiti, I was very data-driven and very quantitative, and we built a scorecard and tracked, okay, we, we needed to get feeding to food to 4 million people. How, how quickly can we do that? We needed water to get to 2.5 million people. We needed lighting and security to protect um, especially women and girls in slum communities throughout Port-au-Prince, and then and then all the other metrics you track. So I, I frankly found the discipline of just being data focused helped uh, deal with the otherwise uh, normal sense of like, do I belong here? <laughs> you know, I just saw myself as you know, get the job done and and move on. Um, and the great thing about that moment was, you know, President Obama was very clear about the purpose. Uh, you know, he was like, look, two hours from our shore in a country that, you know, means a lot both to us as a country and to the concept of racial justice in this hemisphere, uh, we should be doing everything we can. And remember, Afghanistan was happening 
and on the you know at the same time there was a big troop surge in Afghanistan and so this was also a chance to show the world that American power could be used for a, a good moral purpose that was clear and above reproach and and so so we had our marching orders and that was the president's big bet and it allowed everybody to sort of prioritize the the moral calling in the earthquake response and focus on saving lives as opposed to bickering and arguing about this or that. Well, and the bickering is that you've got a lot of agencies that are involved in this effort. You're the one who's saying that you don't necessarily feel like you have all the answers, but your job is to be able to sort of help surface what the answers could be. And I I feel like you did a great job in the book explaining how the data and the scorecard helped bring everybody around. I mean, even the fact that you had to negotiate these scorecards among agencies, like which data you were going to use, which metrics you were going to be following, that's a hard process to corral those interagency processes and then be able to tee up the very best decisions, especially when, you know, time, you've, you're, you're like running against the clock. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and frankly, uh, you know, you make some mistakes along the way, but if you're transparent about what you're achieving and clear about what the needs are, and everyone's on the same basic page in terms of what the scorecard looks like, it does help create a common sense of purpose. And I found, in the book, I talk about the Haiti earthquake in that context, the Ebola uh, response in West Africa, in, also in that context. I found in these moments of, of really immediate crisis, uh, people show up in a different way. You know, they show up with an understanding that, okay, we have to save lives, we're doing it right now, there's no time to waste. And to me, it makes it easier to lead these cross-functional teams. Yeah, but you also, um, I feel like when you talk about big bets, there are the ones that are the proactive ones that you're going after, and then there are the ones that are sort of served to you that you're kind of dealing with in a reactive way. Maybe you could spend a couple, you know, you could talk about the Ebola crisis, which, I mean, these are dangerous situations, and you're not running them from afar. I mean, you're actually somebody who gets on a plane and travels to all over and um, have put yourself into some dangerous situations. Maybe talk about that experience. Well, the Ebola crisis was was really a fascinating and I think undervalued success story in American foreign policy. You know, in the summer of 2014, uh, basically Ebola moved from being a hemorrhagic fever that was causing death and disability in rural communities in Liberia in West Africa to running rampant in an urban setting in Monrovia. Um, in in Liberia, and in the process, almost half of the Liberian healthcare workforce died that summer because they were trying. First, it's a very very small workforce, and second, they were basically serving and taking care of patients with no protective equipment and procedures and policies to protect themselves. So, uh, the crisis was out of control by the time it was sort of September. And the CDC had estimated that there would be 1.6 million cases, including many, many cases in the United States, transmission in the United States. And in that context, President Obama made a big bet. And his big bet was, we're going to establish a strong response in West Africa to keep the disease from coming to our shores and uh, to serve the needs of people there. And because humanitarian service workers couldn't get into West Africa, they just weren't safe enough for this particular purpose, uh, the president deployed almost 3,000 U.S. troops. It was the first U.S. troop deployment to fight a disease in American history. And frankly, uh, the whole team, Marty Dempsey was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, we were all 
quite concerned that if even one service member got sick in a highly politicized environment, it was a few weeks before an election, you know, Donald Trump had started to appear on television berating our response because it was sending people to West Africa and people wanted to cut all the flights and interactions with basically all of Africa as a result. And, uh, and ultimately, the, the effort worked. We had, we had less than 30,000 cases, uh, 11,000 deaths, which were very tragic, but um, only two cases of Ebola ever came to the United States. And I don't think there was ever a single case of transmission in our country. Uh, but it only worked because we were all willing to kind of experiment and build different data collection systems and, and do this in a really professional manner. Um, but to me, it's the lesson, the lesson learned, the lesson in the book is called Keep Experimenting because when the president made his bold commitment, we actually didn't know how to solve the contagion problem uh, with Ebola. The, the things that we thought would work were clearly not going to work, and we had to experiment and listen and find new strategies, which ultimately did. And sort of another version of that is fail fast, right? Yeah. Yeah, and then... Yeah, I mean, in this case, those troops all went and they were building these Ebola treatment units. And, you know, this was a disease that had a 70% mortality. People would, would unfortunately bleed to death, often in public. And, uh, and, and, you know, people stopped going to these Ebola treatment units because at a 70% mortality, basically no one ever came out. Even their ashes and remains never came out. So families would not send sick service or sick family members into these units so we needed an alternative approach and, and there are two things we did that I, I think are instructive in terms of lessons learned one is and I write about this in, in the book in a few different settings we created this sort of out-of-the-box external advisors group to question the things we were doing in government um, that group was super creative had some superstar scientists on it um, and, and would allow us to sort of rethink our assumptions and try new things. The other thing we did is we, we listened to local communities. And one group called Global Communities, working with, with Liberians, came up with the understanding that most of the transmission was happening when family members kind of washed and kissed and redressed the bodies of those who were deceased. So they came up with a strategy of building of these burial teams that would go in, they'd be fully clad in protective equipment, have these WHO body bags, and they would, in a ceremony, remove the body from the family. Um, and that led quickly to a 70% reduction in transmission, and, and we built you know, a couple hundred of those teams across West Africa, and that's what ultimately beat back Ebola. So you're now at the Rockefeller Foundation, and um, I wonder if you could talk about how you think about international affairs today. What is the Rockefeller Foundation's role or the role, you know, how you think about philanthropy more broadly today? Well, I think philanthropy done, done really well can be society's risk capital to come up with the kinds of solutions that can make a huge positive impact in our world. Our single biggest bet right now is, uh, is bringing electricity and renewable electrification and energy to a billion people across this planet who still live in the dark. And it's almost impossible for folks in our country here in the US to appreciate this. But there are 850 million people who live with less electricity consumption than it takes to power one light bulb and one home appliance for a year. And, uh, and that's about 150 kilowatt hours per capita per year. In contrast, each one of us in this country, in this room, 
consumes 12,000 kilowatt hours per capita per year. And it turns out energy access is the core constraint to kind of growth and economic uplift. So about a decade ago, the Rockefeller team, before I got there, started working with uh, technology partners to create these solar mini-grid systems with battery storage and remote, often AI management for battery management, energy management, smart metering and mobile phone-based payment. And uh, at the time, it cost like $1.20 per kilowatt hour to get power to these very rural customers that had no other source of electricity. And that is just way too high. But over time, the price came down. It's now just under 20 cents a kilowatt hour. We're able to partner with other companies. And in India, we're building 10,000 of these mini grids to reach 25 million people to help them move out of poverty. We just announced a big set of projects in eastern Congo to reach 7.1 million people with these solar metro grids um, through local developers. And at this year's uh, climate meeting, which is in about a month, we'll, we'll take about 20 countries together and aggregate their procurement for buying batteries and solar panels and technologies that can help them use renewable electrification to fight poverty, basically, and make sure that everyone has access to electricity. And I think it's such an exciting project because the alternative is basically coal and heavy fuel oil and diesel generators, all of which are more expensive and much more important, are incredibly problematic from a climate perspective. So that's our big bet. Um, it's a super exciting effort. And, uh, and while we worry about some of the macroeconomic constraints that are out there right now, I think this is, for the first time, society has the tools uh, to actually end energy poverty, which could make a huge dent in the human condition at, at massive scale. But one of the things you talked about when you talked about energy poverty was about how um, in order to be able to bring other, you know, other participants on board, other partners and stakeholders on board, you had to kind of reframe your big bet so that they could see themselves in the big bet. Can you maybe talk about that a little bit? Yeah, we, we did. Uh, when, once we realized that this project, you know, that we had kind of uh, created a set of innovations that could potentially scale, and we started to get these commercial joint ventures underway in different parts of the world. We said, well, let's, let's really expand this significantly. So we made the largest single grant we've made in the history of the Rockefeller Foundation, a $500 million grant to create this global energy alliance to, to reach a billion people and move them out of poverty. Uh, but we needed other partners. And so we approached both the Bezos Earth Fund and the IKEA Foundation and through a lot of discussion and negotiation, they also each committed $500 million. So we raised about a billion and a half for that effort. Um, and to do that, you know, their, their primary interest wasn't necessarily poverty reduction. It was primarily carbon emissions offsets. So, so we uh, restructured the program to account for their focus. And in, in retrospect, I'm glad we did because, you know, they're right that you can't just focus on those people who don't have access at all um, and achieve the right kind of long-term efficient energy system country by country. And so they made us smarter. They made us more focused on carbon reduction um, and trading off, replacing diesel generators, replacing often Chinese-financed coal, um, and replacing heavy fuel oil on this pathway. And it's made us a much, much more relevant and stronger collaboration. It also allowed us to raise another $10 billion on top of that in commercial investments uh, that allow us to blend finance 
um, and, and do these projects at much greater scale. Yeah, and I feel like throughout the book you really talk about your learning journey in terms of how to kind of present your your big bet in a way that people are able to connect to it and that you, along the way, you know, found yourself in partnership with some people who you hadn't necessarily expected that you would be, some Republican members of Congress who you didn't necessarily think that you were going to be aligned with, but whatever the issue was, you were able to sort of find that common ground. I wonder, there's a lot of really good questions here, so I want to get to those, but but more broadly, this is your big bet for Rockefeller Foundation, but when you came in to the institution, you you had to like really kind of pivot and shift the institution and think about philanthropy in different ways, and I don't know whether you can even talk about some of the examples and the ways that you've made some of those shifts. I loved the story about when you were in New Orleans and how you thought about that. Maybe you could just talk about some examples there. Sure. Well, one one thing that's great about getting to run an institution like the Rockefeller Foundation is a lot of what we do is bet on other people's big bets. And uh, and I wanted to make the case that not every big bet is some big global project. Uh, in fact, the first project I took on when I started at Rockefeller was, was in New Orleans in support of a mayor there, Mayor Mitch Landrew. And Mitch for, is, is this extraordinary person. He, he just, I, I went to New Orleans to kind of review work the foundation had done in years prior, post-Katrina, to rebuild communities across the city. And whenever I went anywhere in New Orleans, Mitch would show up, and he would know like everybody in the room. He would know kids, he'd know their parents, he'd know their stories, he'd know what, you know, what they struggled with, what they hoped for. And, uh, and it was great to see how connected he was to the community he was serving. And that evening, uh, we had dinner, and Mitch said, look, I've, I've spent a couple of years convincing this community, working and listening, um, and getting people to a place where they want to remove four Confederate statues. And one was a big, huge statue of Robert E. Lee in the middle of this circle. Another was actually a monument celebrating a terrorist attack when a white supremacist group uh, attacked and, and slaughtered the racially integrated police force in New Orleans post-Reconstruction. And, and these statues all went up in that post-Reconstruction era. And so he had done this whole process for a couple of years to get everyone aligned around doing this. And just when they were going to take the statues down, the contractor, and you can't make this stuff up, who happened to drive a Lamborghini, had his Lamborghini bombed in, in front of his home. And then he pulled out and said, I can't, I can't do this. It's not safe. And Mitch needed someone to step in and support the project quickly before the state government was getting involved and it would have shut it all down. So uh, to make a long story short, we jumped in and did that. Um, and you know, Mitch was able to get the statues taken down. We didn't know it at the time, but that, in fact, sparked a national movement around uh, asking ourselves questions about these, these monuments, what they mean, how they affect different members of the community, and what, what they should what they should be going forward. And that, of course, then led to Charlottesville and some other parts of our nation's history on, on racial dialogue. And so uh, it was an extraordinary achievement for Mitch. And he's, he's written a beautiful book about the work and uh, has, is just one of our great leaders. And, and the point I'd make is, uh, if you get to be in a position, uh, well, the big point I'd make is you don't have to really run or work on these big global projects to make a difference in your community. You can do it community by community. You just have to be ambitious on behalf of the goal. 
And Mitch didn't want to just do one statue or do a few meetings and have a dialogue. He actually was super committed to taking them all down and replacing them with something that was more inclusive and more hopeful. And we were able to help him do that. Well, the point that I would make here is that Raj was, um, he's, he's being his uh, characteristically um, modest self, is that he's new in the role and he is, you know, in this, he's faced with this question about whether or not he should do this because it's not really what they do at the Rockefeller Foundation. And he goes and he seeks the advice of many people who say, don't do it, don't do it, think about it, be cautious, move slowly, don't do it, don't do it. And um, and he goes out there and he goes for a run and he looks at it and he thinks about it and he comes back and he does a bunch of research himself, you know, rolls up his sleeves and gets his hands dirty and um, and and looks at it and he comes to the view that this is the right thing to do and he pursues it. So I think it just sort of shows that, you know, you have to be courageous to do these things too and have conviction. So there are on that sort of along those lines. Thank you for these wonderful questions. There are many here, so I'm going to kind of power <laughs> through them. Um, Somebody asked, what is the most challenging side of being president of the Rockefeller Foundation? Oh, the most challenging side. Honestly, the most challenging thing is uh, there's so many things you can do that are considered good and that, that, make, uh, that make a difference. And almost anything you do gets positive reviews because, you know, you're usually giving money to people. And, and so they're, you know, by and large, pleased with that. Uh, not always, but by and large. And so the hardest thing is just being selective and, and remaining focused. So I, I mentioned the energy project. Uh, you know, for us, $500 million is a huge amount of money. And, and it, we went, you know, we basically do almost 50% of everything we do is that one project. And if you look across sort of American philanthropic institutions, I, there probably isn't another one out there right now that does 50% in one grant. Uh, and then stakes its claim on that that single project's sort of success or failure. Um, the the example I would I learned from, of course, was the the vaccine alliance in the early days of the Gates Foundation, when I think they'd basically done that. Um, and I and to me, I think that's what big bets are about. It's about you know it might be hard, it might be risky, it might even fail, but after doing your homework you know, make a big bet on something you think can really be transformational for the world. Because if we did $501 million projects, we probably wouldn't have the ability to imagine impact the way we can with this single effort. So somebody else asked, what is the best professional advice that you've received and who was it from? You have a long list to choose from, so. <laughs> I have a long list to, to choose from. Uh, I'd say... Maybe two answers, one from someone uh, who shared the advice with me, and then one is something I've learned just on this book tour over the last couple of weeks. So the, the answer from the person who shared the advice was Hillary Clinton. And you know, in government, when, when you do things like the Haiti earthquake response or even some other things I write about in the book on hunger and food security and fighting famines, you're always going to upset somebody. And uh, there, on more than one occasion, you know, a congressman might put out a press release that says Raj Shah should get fired. Or uh, that one was kind of scary for me because my mom called and asked me. She's like, did you get fired? And I was like, I don't think so. I'm here in my office working. She's like, I just saw on TV that I think you got fired. And I, and I was so new. This was during the Haiti earthquake. I didn't actually, I thought maybe, maybe I did. I don't know. No, I mean, nobody, 
nobody tells you things very directly anyway. So I got super nervous and I, I called Hillary and I was like, can I come see you? And she's like, of course. So I run over there uh, to, the, to Foggy Bottom and I sit down and I was like, this congressman put out this press release and then CNN carried it about what, like, what's going on. And she's like, oh, he probably wants something. Just go, go meet with him. Uh, and I was like, okay, because I, I was shaken. And then she closes the door and she's like, listen, like this town's tough. I've been through a lot. I being Hillary, like just toughen up and go deal with it. And, uh, and you know, when you're sitting there in that context, it turns out that Congressman wanted a as family member or friend, wanted a contract to remove rubble in Haiti. Uh, and, and our agency had not provided that contract um, and didn't provide that contract. So, uh, but anyway, the good news was I didn't lose my job. But the, the good advice I got was if you're going to do things that, you know, that involve risk, you're going to upset some folks and you just have to be tough um, when, you, when you do that work and learn how to weather the criticism. Uh, the second thing I've really learned, I've really reflected a lot just because I've, on this book tour, gone to high schools and met with these young kids and they're all, and they have these amazing questions, you know, and, and so they want to know like, okay, how do you, how do you get these mentors and learn all these things? And it occurred to me that I got very lucky early in my career that I ended up working with people. Um, I think some of them are in this room, but I, like I said, I can't see. Oh, there's Rick right there. So, so one is Rick Klausner, who was my boss at the Gates Foundation for a while and has been a great friend ever since and was on half of the out-of-the-box groups that I've talked about in the book. But folks like Rick and others, you know, that, that taught me, and Bill and, and Melinda, that taught me how to think about don't just settle for doing good enough if you can go the extra mile intellectually and analytically to try to actually solve problems. Uh, and, and I credit a lot of the book, the concept of big bets comes from those conversations and that set of collaborations together. And thankfully, they've been lifelong friends. Um, so my advice to the high school kids was when you get your first real jobs, just think long and hard. Don't worry about what your job description is or what you even do but think really hard about who is going to influence the way you think. Because the way you learn how to think in those early career experiences might very well shape how you think through much of your life. And I feel very grateful. Thanks, Rick, for being here. That seems deep and profound. But didn't, Rick, didn't you also counsel him to wear shoes that didn't have holes when he was meeting with the president of France? <laughs> he didn't listen. Okay. Do you want to share that? Okay, I'll tell this story because this is now we're now we get to make fun of Rick. Or me, I guess. But so we did this big project on vaccine bonds. And at one point we just had to sell it to the French government. And President Chirac was the president of France. So I was in a meeting with with Bill Gates with President Chirac. And uh and I was young. I was like a couple years into my career at the Gates Foundation. And uh and we had bought some new clothes for the meeting because I was like, what do you wear if you're meeting with President Chirac in the Elysee Palace and you're pitching your idea? Uh, but I, and I bought new shoes, but I'd left them in Seattle. And the shoes I had actually were scuffed up and had a, had a hole in them. Uh, and so I told that. Uh, and so anyway, we go through the meeting. The meeting goes fine. Uh, the good news is the French government actually led this effort and, and it, it worked spectacularly well. Uh, and I, after the meeting, I was hanging out. I called Rick on my, on my phone, and I said, well, what did Bill say? What, what did Bill think? How did, how did he think our meeting went? 
and and Rick is like, oh, you know, Bill, Bill thought substantively the meeting was great, um, but he was he was quite annoyed with you and frustrated with you. And I'm thinking, oh my god, because back then all I really wanted was Bill's approval and Rick's approval, all this stuff. And uh, he's like, well, he said he thought for meeting the president of France, you know, at the Elysee Palace, you should have not had shoes that had holes in them. And I was like terrified. And then a moment later, he just starts cracking up <laughs> because, of course, Bill didn't say that. And, uh, <laughs> but he knew that I was sensitive about it. And we were just making fun of each other. Okay. The questions are rolling in. There are so many here. So we're going to give shorter answers. And I'm going to go through all these because the mark of a good time is if you got to ask your question. So would you constitute what Mackenzie Scott is doing a big bet? Uh, yeah, I look. I don't think uh, it's not quite the same as what I talk about here. I don't think every uh, philanthropic uh, leader needs to do the exact same thing. I think di- different business models work for different institutions. So the Ford Foundation makes a large number of relatively smaller grants to civil society organizations around the world. I think it's fantastic, um, and that's a great fit for their model. I love what Mackenzie Scott is doing, where she says, "Look, I'm not going to try to." build a team that's that's doing the analytics around how do you solve homelessness at scale, but I am going to find the four or five people that I think are doing it best and just give them massive and significant resources relative to what they have and wish them well. I think that's a, a bold and courageous model, and I think it's outstanding that she's doing that. Okay. What's the strategy to ensure equity and justice are at the center of all international health initiatives? Well, inter- international health initiatives right now are having an extremely tough time. For for if you look from about 2000 to 2017, uh, well, to pre-COVID, uh, we were on an extraordinary run. I mean, child mortality went from 11 and a half million under five child deaths a year to five and a half million, um, and that's just one indicator. But almost across any indicator, the progress was astonishing and very broadly based. Like even in some very tough conflict-affected communities, we were making real progress. COVID has unwound all that and, um, and has really set back the cause probably five to 10 years. And now we're in a situation where 40 to 50 countries are teetering on the edge of a debt crisis. So I was just in Kenya, 60 cents on the dollar goes to paying off interest and, and they're cutting health programs, cutting food and nutrition programs for kids. So in a context of less resources and backsliding on performance, achieving equity and racial justice and focusing on reaching women and girls and vulnerable communities within these countries is much, 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 much harder. So uh, I think the, the only way you're going to succeed going forward is, is uh, and our foundation has advocated for a lot of these policies, but a restructuring of, of the debts that about 50 or 60 countries have. The last time this kind of a debt restructuring happened, it was called the Jubilee 2000 movement. It happened right at the turn of the century, of the millennium, and, and it wiped out a significant amount of debt for countries, but they insisted that the proceeds saved would go towards paying for girls going to school and paying for women getting educational and, and leadership opportunities, and you could track the progress and results, and I think we need that kind of a large-scale effort now. And this is sort of, this is kind of related to that, but as the Rockefeller Foundation promotes its big bet recipes on its website for a healthier USA and the world, could it create a database of experts and institutions that endorse or decline these recipes, maybe allowing for feedback 
it provided by them as to their nuanced perspectives. Yeah, I mean, I mean th- some of those exist already, uh, and and can be um, can be enhanced. What one particular thing that we're doing that I'm very excited about is as part of an effort, and and governments are doing this too. USAID under uh, Administrator Sam Powers' leadership, she's doing a great job with this. It's called localization, and we're basically just identifying really strong. NGOs that are local in country after country, and then trying to more directly finance those uh, those organizations and create a database with information and support for all of them, so others can do that as well. And uh, but yes, in general, I think that that's something that can really expand and is already happening. Okay, I'm going to combine uh, two of them together. Somebody said to quote on page 188. What is the most what is the most consequential thing to be done for 2024? But then somebody else asked, what's the big bet to save democracy? Well, let me they are two different questions. I think for 20 uh, you know, for 2024 on on the international side, the the big issue is uh, is that in fact for the first time really since World War II, we're in a sustained period of divergence in terms of human development outcomes. And I'm sorry to be wonky for a moment, but basically since World War II, uh, lesser developed countries have grown faster than wealthy countries in terms of aggregate growth. And the Delta has been big enough to support convergence in human development indicators, health, education, longevity, uh, income improvements, et cetera, women's workforce participation, whatever you measure as human development. And since COVID, you know, where rich countries put 30, 40% of GDP into their economies, uh, developing countries put 2% of their GDP into their economies. And the divergence that that has caused has been extraordinary. And today we're subsidizing massively, uh, greening the economies in wealthier environments. And most developing countries don't even have meaningful access to, say, renewable energy technology. So, so to me, there's a macroeconomic deal that has to happen, which is why the debt relief program and some of the other things we've pushed um, on that front are, are so important from a financing perspective. On the on the democracy side, I mean, I'm sure everybody has an opinion about that. I, you know, the truth is we have to protect our democracy in the United States first and foremost, and we have to revert to being a country that stands up for democratic principles elsewhere in the world. I mean, I remember negotiating the outcomes of, of polling da- data and going kind of through the information we had collected while monitoring elections in Afghanistan, in South Sudan, in the DRC, in Guatemala, and sitting with leaders and doing that. The only reason you can do that is if you have moral authority as a country that respects election processes and values democracy. And frankly, um, our standing around the world as a country that does that has diminished greatly over the last decade. And without getting deep into US politics, I mean, it is inexcusable that we continue to elevate uh, people who very vocally undermine the sanctity of our own democratic processes. So I think we have to reestablish American moral leadership on democracy and get back into the business of making sure that we're uh, communicating and engaging in diplomatic efforts around the world to promote democratic processes based on that authority. 
I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to wrap this up. But I just, just in 30 seconds or less, what is your challenge to all of us? Well, my my big challenge is, uh, can I, I'm gonna have three. Right. What one is, and I'll be very quick. The first is just remember that big bets start with betting on yourself. You know, for each of us, that might be slightly different. And you'll have different people in your life that help you realize what your own potential is. But, but I really have come to believe the big bets start with betting on yourself. The second is that, you know, it is realistic to be an optimist about our future. As tough as these issues are, I wrote this book because there's a success story around Ebola. There's a success story we didn't talk about, about moving 100 million people out of hunger and poverty. There's going to be a tremendous success story on ending energy poverty in just the next 10 to 15 years. And these are massive achievements for, for justice, for equity, for humanity, for peace, for security. So be, be an optimist. Um, and the final thing is, you know, I hope, I hope you leave this with a desire to sort of explore a big bet mindset. I mean, I've learned it from others. I didn't invent this. Arguably, the Rockefeller Foundation was based on this concept uh, 110 years ago when John D. Rockefeller actually called it scientific philanthropy. But, um, but I just hope, I hope you, you read the book and feel empowered about your ability to make a difference, whether it's in your community, uh, in your country, or around the world. So um, bet on yourself and, um, and really sort of go for it. It are the are really the things to do here, um, which I think is in, and remain an optimist, which is also very important. Really want to thank you, Raj Shah, uh, president of the Rockefeller Foundation and author of Big Bets. Um, we encourage all of you to pick up your copy of a book. I say yours because it's like sitting there waiting for you to get a copy of the book. Um, here or at your local bookstore, and if you'd like to support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit commonwealthclub.org backslash events. And Marnie Levine, thank you and take care. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.